0: Thank you Delta K, Arakul Bunjalung woman, for welcoming us to country. Delta is a long-term supporter of Byron Writers Festival. I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers' Festival. You're listening to a podcast series featuring writers from the 2021 festival lineup. These conversations were due to take place live in Byron Bay in August, but have been recorded digitally instead. In this session, created in collaboration with the Books, Books, Books podcast, Pip Williams talks with Nicole Aberdee about her novel The Dictionary of Lost Words, which is available for purchase from the bookroom at byron.com.
1: Hello. I'm Nicole Evedy and I write about books for Good Weekend. Thank you for joining me. Today I'm delighted to welcome Australian writer Pip Williams to Books 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 to speak about her debut novel, The Dictionary of Lost Words, which has been something of a lockdown sensation, selling over 150,000 copies and winning a number of awards. It was published in March 2020 just as the first lockdowns began, by a firm press. I'd like to say that this is a very special episode of Books, Books, Books. This is a session that was due to take place live at Byron Writers' Festival in August 2021. Very, very sadly, the festival was cancelled due to COVID, but I am thrilled to be able to present this interview as a, a part of the Books, Books, Books podcast series. Before becoming a full-time writer, which I might say was largely in part due to the phenomenal success of this novel, Pip was a social researcher, studying how people live their lives and what makes lives good. The Dictionary of Lost Words is Pip's third book and first novel, and it's based on her original research in the Oxford English Dictionary Archive, which we're going to hear a little bit about later. International rights have been sold into multiple territories and the book has been published in the US and the UK in April, 2021. Pip's book has had rave reviews here and overseas. It has sold a phenomenal 150,000 copies. It's appeared in national bestseller lists and it's won the following literary awards. The Indie Book Awards It won both book of the year and best debut for 2021. It won the MUD Literary Prize for debut fiction, the Arbia General Fiction Book of the Year, New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards People's Choice Award 2021, the ABA Nielsen Bookseller's Choice Adult Fiction Book of the Year 2021, and it's been shortlisted and longlisted for other awards as well. Acclaimed Australian writer Geraldine Brooks has said this about the Dictionary of Lost Words. Pip Williams has spun a marvelous fiction about the power of language to elevate or repress. It is at once timely and timeless. Pip, it's absolutely wonderful to have you here today on Books, Books, Books.
2: Oh, Nicole, I haven't—I haven't had anyone summarise everything quite like that. And I have to admit, I'm a bit teary now. <laughs> um, it's been, yeah, it's been an incredible eighteen months. Um, really. So thank you um, so much for, I don't know, the honour that you, you give the book in that introduction. Um, and before we start, I was, I was just hoping to acknowledge the, the lands that I'm actually um, talking to you from. So I, I wrote this book on Ghana country and also Paramount country, um, um, and they are the original storytellers. Uh, of the place where I come from. So Ghana is the Adelaide Plains and Paramount people are the traditional owners of uh, the Adelaide Hills. Uh, And it's it's a great um, honour to be able to acknowledge this and to know who these people were and, in the case of Ghana, to um, understand that so many of the words that were once lost are now being found for um, those peoples and you know that's kind of what this book is about.
1: Thank you Pip. Would you like to start by reading a short extract for us? I'd love to
2: so I'm reading right from the beginning this is the prologue and it's February 1886. Before the lost word there was another it arrived at the scriptorium in a second-hand envelope the old address crossed out and Dr Murray Sunnyside Oxford written in its place. It was Dar's job to open the post and mine to sit on his lap like a queen on her throne and help him ease each word out of its folded cradle. He'd tell me what pile to put it on and sometimes he'd pause, cover my hand with his and guide my finger up and down and around the letters, sounding them into my ear. He'd say the word and I would echo it, then he'd tell me what it meant. This word was written on a scrap of brown paper, its edges rough where it had been torn to match Dr Murray's preferred dimensions. Dar paused and I readied myself to learn it. But his hand didn't cover mine and when I turned to hurry him, the look on his face made me stop. As close as we were, he looked far away. I turned back to the word and tried to understand. Without his hand to guide me, I traced each letter. What does it say? I asked. Lily, he said. Like Mama. Like Mama. Does that mean she'll be in the dictionary? In a way, yes. Will we all be in the dictionary? No. Why? I felt myself rise and fall on the movement of his breath. A name must mean something to be in the dictionary. I looked at the word again. Was Mama like a flower? I asked. Da nodded, the most beautiful flower. He picked up the word and read the sentence beneath it. Then he turned it over, looking for more. It's incomplete, he said, but he read it again, his eyes flicking back and forth as if he might find what was missing. He put the word down on the smallest pile. Da pushed his chair back from the sorting table. I climbed off his lap and readied myself to hold the first pile of slips. This was another job I could help with and I loved to see each word find its place among the pigeonholes. He picked up the smallest pile and I tried to guess where Mama would go. Not too high and not too low, I sang to myself. But instead of putting the words in my hand, Da took three long steps toward the fire grate and threw them into the flames. There were three slips. When they left his hand, each was danced by the draught of heat to a different resting place. Before it had even landed, I saw Lily begin to curl. I heard myself scream as I ran towards the grate. I heard Dar bellow my name. The slip was writhing. I reached in to rescue it, even as the brown paper charred and the letters written on it turned to shadows. I thought I might hold it like an oak leaf, faded and winter crisp. But when I wrapped my fingers around the word, it shattered. I might have stayed in that moment forever but Dar yanked me away with a force that winded. He ran with me out of the scriptorium and plunged my hand into the snow. His face was ashen, so I told him it didn't hurt. But when I unfurled my hand, the blackened shards of the word were stuck to my melted skin. Some words are more important than others. I learned this growing up in the scriptorium, but it took me a long time to
1: understand why. Thank you. Could you start by telling us what your novel is about? So the Dictionary of Lost Words
2: is a novel that weaves fact and fiction. Um, So the fact that is woven through this novel is the compilation of the first Oxford English Dictionary. And this was a project that was begun in 1858 and completed in 1928 a 70-year project to collate all the words of the English language, present and past, into what ended up being 12 massive volumes of words. It was a project that they thought would take 10 years (laughs) but took 70 and had a number of of chief editors. But the the most celebrated is James Murray. He really got the project um, up and running and and it was it was really his baby for um most of his the second half of his adult life. Um, and within that scaffold, if you if you like, I've woven the story of a little girl called Esme. What I wanted to know really was, do words mean different things to men and women? And if they do, is there a chance that something is missing? in the way that we've defined our language, our English language. Um, I could have explored this in a way like a social scientist. I could have just done the historical research and tried to answer this question. And, in fact, um, the reason I came up with the question at all was because I I had read Simon Winchester's book, The Surgeon of Crowthorne, which was a fascinating bit of non-fiction about this project, but um, at the end of it, I I was left with this impression that it was a very male um, project, but most importantly, um, the data, I suppose, that that was used to define words had to be um, text. So words had to be written down in order to end up in the dictionary. Um, The lexicographers collected sentences in which words had been used in order to develop definitions, now, the, the literature that they were looking at, literature, scientific journals, manuals, textbooks, you name it,
1: most of that was written by men, particularly prior to the 20th century. When you read The Surgeon of Crowthorne, your impression was that the whole endeavour was very male. Just tell us a little bit about that. Who, who's involved in the process and, and the fact that all of them really were men?
2: Yeah, of course. So essentially, um, like most things um, in the Victorian era, uh, the people who um, were the movers and shakers of the world were men and, and the dictionary was no different. Uh, so the, the editors of the dictionary were all men. The, um, the dictionary the idea for the dictionary actually came about um, at a meeting of the London Philological Society, uh, which was all men um, and not just any men. they were men who had to they were men who had particular um, social standing and degrees, usually from Oxford and Cambridge. So even Dr. Murray, Dr. James Murray who eventually became the editor, of the Oxford English Dictionary, um, found it difficult to uh, become a member of this society because he was just a humble school teacher from Scotland. He didn't have the same social standing or education as these men who were proposing a new dictionary, a dictionary that would improve on Samuel Johnson's um, much more thorough dictionary than those that had gone before, but also still quirky and... and um, you know lacking in in substance I suppose and so this was a very elite group of men to begin with and then all of the editors the lexicographers um, the people who were paying for the dictionary which was the delegates of Oxford University Press every single one of them was a man and not like I said just any man they they weren't equally represented men weren't equally represented in these in these groups of people either they were well educated upper class and middle class men
1: And Pip, there Um, were other participants as well. Could you tell us about the role of volunteers? And they were all, they were mainly men. Yeah, so James Murray,
2: the reason the, the dictionary ever really got off the ground is because James Murray sent out a call to the general public to send in examples of how words had been used in books. And the volunteers were the people from all around the globe, really, who sent in little slips of paper with words and example sentences And the majority of these volunteers were men, partly because a lot of them were scholars themselves or good readers, had big libraries and so on. There were were many women who were volunteers and sent words in and some of those women I honour in in this book, one in particular, Edith Thompson. But by and large, the, the people involved were men, but most importantly, the words had been written by men. And why
1: did that concern you, Pip?
2: So it concerned me initially as a social scientist. The data was biased. You know, it's kind of like if if we ran the census, which we all participated in recently, um, and we only sent it to men, and then we made decisions about um, the experience of living in Australia based on the experiences of the men who filled out the census it's exactly the same problem. Mm. We were defining the language based on data that had been gathered by men and written by men. And I I had to assume that that meant that the dictionary and the words and the way they'd been defined was biased towards men's experience. Um, And this came as a huge shock to me, Nicole. I looked at the dictionaries on my Bookshelf, and, and suddenly, in a flash, I realized that they were not the objective arbiters of truth that I had always thought they were. Um, it also made me question other texts as well, actually, encyclopedias, um, maps, even, you know, also atlases, all sorts of things that originated um, 100, 200, 300 years ago. Um, and And, you know, the foundation of these texts that we think are objective, um, those foundations started in Victorian times when women and other people, working class people, migrants, you know, Indigenous people, really had no voice,
1: no say um, and no representation. So in your book, as you said, you have a mixture of fictional characters and those who are based on real life people. Let's start by talking about the your main protagonist, the, the fictional Esme. So she's born in 1881. When we first met her in 1886, she's a little girl aged five and she's the one whose uh, voice you were reading in when you read that extract before. Tell us a little bit about Esme. What do we know about her?
2: So Esme is motherless and that's quite important um, to the story, though I have to admit I didn't realise at the time how important it really was. But Esme is motherless. She's an only child, and because of that fact, her father, who is a lexicographer in the scriptorium working on the Oxford English Dictionary, is allowed to bring her to work. So the scriptorium is one of uh, it's it's one of those uh, beautiful facts that uh, is just a gem for a historical fiction writer. Uh, the scriptorium was a corrugated iron shed in the front yard of James Murray's house in Oxford. Um, Apparently it was freezing cold in winter and hot in summer because it was just an iron, a garden shed. Um, It was large enough though to house probably about eight lexicographers and, and assistants who were working with Dr. Murray on collating the English language and its walls were lined with bookshelves, Containing old dictionaries and um, other reference books, but also pigeonholes. And the pigeonholes were, as you can imagine, a a sort of the pigeonholes that might be in a um, staff room in a school or something. They were designed specifically to hold these slips of paper. That held the words and example sentences uh, they were exactly the right size for these slips of paper and there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these pigeonholes packed with slips of paper thousands and thousands
1: of words mostly these, received from volunteers Pip? yes oh
2: almost all of them received from volunteers um, some of them would have been solicited particularly from experts but All of them have been sent in by, you know, by volunteers in that people weren't paid to collect these words and and write the sentences down. Um, But I think for many people, it became a, a wonderful hobby, actually, because you can see in the volumes, James Murray actually thanks all the not all the volunteers, but the volunteers who sent in um, large numbers of words and sentences. And when I say large numbers, I mean thousands and thousands of words and sentences. Um, and so for some people this was their life, <laughs> really. Uh, and, and, in fact, you know, when I say their life, decades of their life was dedicated to volunteering for this, this Oxford English Dictionary and, if you like, for, for the preservation of the English language. Um, and Esme grows up in this place that is full of words and words to her are tangible. And I hope that that's what you got from the reading that I gave, that, you know, that very first word that I suppose is the catalyst for Esme's Esme's concern for words um, there was this one word that represented her mother, Lily, Lily, and it was thrown into the flames. And for from that moment on, uh, words become tangible, fragile things for Esme.
1: And Esme, in fact, starts collecting words. And I'd like you to tell us about the first word that she finds, how she comes across it and what she does with it.
2: So the very first word that Esme finds or that finds her is the word bondmaid. And bond made means slave girl. And the interesting thing about bond made, and again, another one of those little, um, you know, nuggets of gold from the history, from the archives, bond made really did go missing from the Oxford English Dictionary. In fact, James Murray, <laughs> James Murray tried to convince absolutely everybody who, who um, knew about this missing word that it was the only word that ever went missing. According to him, it was almost impossible for words to be misplaced or lost. Um, and the fact that this one was, was an anomaly. Um, I beg to differ, having now <laughs> done the research and, and having a bit of an understanding of, of the process. I think there are many ways a word might have been lost. Um, and my book explores that to some extent. But this very first word, there is no explanation for how it was lost. Um, the original slip with the definition was never found though of course a new one was made and put into the supplement that was published in in the 30s but um the very first dictionary a and b the very first volume i have a copy actually that my partner gave me for my birthday and i the first thing i did of course was look for that word bond made and it is not there it is definitely
1: missing someone writes to dr murray to tell him that that word's missing
2: that's right. So the the volume was published in 1888, but James Murray didn't find out about this missing word until 1901, when a member of the public wrote a letter um, asking why it wasn't there. When bondman was there, you know, other related words were in the dictionary, but not bond made. And um, that letter itself has also gone missing, I think. But there's reference to it. It was it was archived in in a way. So its receipt was archived and its content um, in general was noted, but the letter I haven't been able to find. And so
1: that was something else I could make up. Um, That was then the kernel of this story with Esme, wasn't it? So in your story, how does Esme get hold of this word and what does she do with it?
2: Yes. So because we don't know how it was lost, I could make it up. And I've put Esme underneath the sorting table in the scriptorium. So like you said, she was about four or five years old, very small. Her job was to, once she'd helped her dad, was to stay quiet and out of the way. (laughs) And so she would stay under the sorting table. And every now and then, slips of paper would fall from the sorting table. And this one fell from the edge of the sorting table and into her lap. And because nobody bent down to claim it, she kept it. And she asked her one and only friend in the world, Lizzie, who was the maid in the big house, which was James Murray's house, she asked Lizzie if Lizzie could look after it and Lizzie gave her an empty trunk which she kept under her bed and this trunk becomes Esme's Dictionary of Lost Words. And she starts collecting other slips of paper that have fallen, not been claimed or have been neglected or discarded on purpose, she collects them and she keeps them in this trunk under Lizzie's bed.
1: Pip, as she gets older, we see her year by year in there with her father in the scriptorium watching everyone. And then from the time she's 17, she asks if she can actually be her father's assistant. And as the years pass, we see her being given greater and greater responsibilities working with her father in the scriptorium. One day she hears her friend Lizzie use an unfamiliar word, or in fact she's heard her use it a few times, the word knackered. What does she decide to do with that word? So um, knackered is a word that I have
2: also heard through the generations of my of the women in my family. Uh, so I know it's an old word um, and when I talk to people I know other people have this same experience of this word. And what... Esme decides to do is take a slip of paper that had a, that had been sent in by a volunteer but was incomplete. Um, so when they're incomplete, they, they get sort of reused. They cross out what was on one side and they reuse the slip of paper. She turns it over and she writes knackered on the top of this slip of paper. And then she writes the sentence that Lizzie has used um, in order to help define it. And under that, Esme provides a sort of tentative definition using Lizzie's um, meaning, if that makes sense. So she does it
1: in the same way that the words uh, are done, for that she's seen it done in the scriptorium in relation to words that have been sent in by volunteers. That's exactly right. She does it in exactly the same way.
2: And interestingly, she also does it on the back of a slip that was for the word listless. And the word listless, she realises, is similar to knackered, but not quite the same. And what she realises in that moment is that this word knackered, which is not in the dictionary, she looks it up, it has not been included, what she realises is that this is a word that is used by people who work really hard in physical labour. And the people who work really hard in physical labour, at the end of the day, they feel like a worn-out horse, like they're good for nothing but the knackery. And this is she realises that this is an experience that's different to tired or listless, Um, and it's an experience of the working class. And she wonders if, if this is why the word doesn't get included or hasn't been written down, because the people who feel knackered don't write. And like Lizzie, many of them are illiterate, in fact. And so she writes this word on a slip. And it's the first time anything Lizzie has ever said has been written down. And from then on, she she gets the idea to collect other words, particularly from women, um, and she asks Lizzie to help her with that.
1: She says, doesn't she, you were saying that she realises that that there are words that haven't been included because they're they're words used by working-class people who aren't involved in writing the dictionary. But then, as you say, she realises something more particularly, and she asks do you think there are some words that only women use or that apply to women specifically? And as you say, she then starts setting about collecting new words, mainly from women that have never been written down. Where does she get those words from? Where does she find them? So she, she finds
2: them um, in the places where working women um, exist. So in particular, the covered market, Uh, which is a real place in Oxford, uh, which has, you know, all of the sort of food sellers and and stalls selling various things. But there's one one little stall in particular that she likes to visit. Um, And although Lizzie tries to dissuade her from this because the owner of this stall, which is really two rickety crates, uh, set up with flotsam and jetsam but, that Mabel, the stallholder, has, has just gathered from the Thames at low tide. Um, she's the poorest of the poor. She's, the, she's one of the most undesirable people in, in Oxford, really. Um, she's, she's old, her teeth are missing, she smells, her hair's falling out, um, and she used to be a, a prostitute in her younger years. And she, she has one of the most colourful languages <laughs> that um, Esme in particular has ever heard um, and also that Lizzie has ever heard. And Lizzie tries to protect Esme, if you like, from, from Mabel's um, potty mouth <laughs> uh, and tries to steer her away. But Esme is is um, intrigued and, and she wants to know these words that Mabel uses. She wants to understand them. And so, as well as as gathering words from other people, Mabel becomes the person Mabel represents many of the women that Esme collects words from.
1: And I have to ask you, what are some of the words that she uh, learns from Mabel? You might want to use an um, abbreviated form for one of them. <laughs> so
2: Esme, in fact, Lizzie comes up with the abbreviated form in my in my story. Um Lizzie calls it the C word, yeah, and so go do with we. That. <laughs> <laughs> and but the way but Mabel Mabel uses it um in a limerick actually, and um, and the limerick uses the word as a euphemism, not as an insult. So it, in in order for Mabel to help Esme understand what this word really means, because it's bandied about as an insult, a vulgar insult. Yeah, it's actually used as an insult often to apply to a man especially today today we throw this word usually at men back then it Mabel uses it towards towards a woman Um, but originally so this word the reason it's interesting and the reason it's in my book isn't just for a sort of bit of kind of you know shock value it's in my book because it's one of the oldest words in the English language that's been written down and it actually satisfied every single criteria for inclusion in the Oxford English Dictionary And yet James Murray is the one that excised it from the dictionary. He's the one that decided it would not go in because it was too vulgar. And this was actually a little um, out of character for James Murray, who was more likely to include um, words like this than many of the other um, people who were paying for it, who often asked for these words to be taken out. Um, who who often said things like, and I've seen letters where this has been um, the case. They they say things like, we shouldn't be encouraging the use of these words. So they they're, they're all they're admitting to their power mm. um, in creating a dictionary and defining the language and imposing how their use. moral judgment exactly
1: as a, as a form of selection criteria. It,
2: yes, exactly. And in this instance, James Murray. Um, agreed and he he left the word out, even though he was pretty dedicated to his scientific method of inclusion. Um, and the reason that this bothered me in particular was because the word has not always been a vulgar insult. Um, it, it was a euphemism. It was slang for a woman's body part. Um, and in, in keeping with the Oxford English Dictionary as a history of the English language, in particular, it's, it's devastating and a travesty that it was left out because, because then people didn't have access to the origins of the word. They didn't have access to its original um, meaning
1: and definition and use amongst the working class. Um, Can I just it, ask you to explain that, Pip? You make that point that there's something unique about the Oxford English Dictionary that sets it apart from other dictionaries in that it is it is actually a historical text Could you explain that?
2: Yes. So unlike the Macquarie or the Collins Dictionary, which gives you a word and its current definition, what the Oxford English Dictionary does is it gives you a word and the various definitions that word may have because some words have various definitions. And then it gives you examples of how the word has been used throughout history dating back to the very first instance that that the lexicographers can find. Of that word, now if the c word had been included in that first dictionary, then the very first example of its use might have been um, a street sign in in London, because that's the first time that we know of that it was written down, and that was in around twelve fifty around that time in the 13th century and so in a more literary sense it was used by Chaucer and and other writers of the time as a euphemism for a woman's body part Um, and so there's plenty of evidence uh, of this word dating back hundreds of years and what the Oxford English Dictionary does usually for a word is it allows you to to read back over the history of that word, to see how it's changed um, depending on its circumstances, depending on who was using it at the time and how, which is actually incredibly fascinating and very
1: informative. Uh, And it was especially for me (laughs) writing this book. Esme starts collecting these words. She meets Mabel, who's a great source of words of the kind we've just discussed and a lot of other words that uh, Esme hasn't heard before. What does Esme do with this? So she she writes the word down and then she writes a sentence using the word, at, attributing it to the person who she's learnt it from. What does she do with those slips? What would she really like to do with them?
2: So what she really wants to do, well, initially she just collects them out of curiosity and often this is how things start. This is how my book started. I started reading things out of curiosity and eventually you collect enough information to tell a story of some kind. And in Esme's case, it's not to tell a story, but it's to document words that she knows are not going to be in the official dictionary um, that she's helping to compile at this stage. She knows these words will never be in there, but she thinks they're important. And by, by giving them importance, by writing them down, Um, in a way that they haven't been written down before and attributing them to people who often can't read them and have never had anything about, never had their name written down before, Um, what she's doing is validating the language of these women. And what she wants is, in her heart of hearts, what she wants is to create an alternative dictionary, a dictionary of women's words um, that recognises the
1: language and the meanings of words that women use. So this gets Esme thinking about a whole lot of things. And one of the things she asks her father is why is it that Dr. Murray won't include words that aren't written down? What's the answer? The answer, well, the answer, it's multi, there's a
2: it's multifold, really. The answer is that some words don't stick to the tongue and are never written down because they are transient. And we 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 have words like that. And in fact, dictionary lexicographers are still making those decisions. Is this a word that's going to stick or is it just a fad that is really going to last a season, if you like? Does it deserve to be in in the dictionary? Um, And and so these decisions are constantly being made. Um, But other words, uh, one of the problems with, with the Oxford English Dictionary in the very first volumes is that so many people were illiterate at that time. And uh, and so many people didn't have access to the means of publication. So even though women were writing and wanted to publish, they often didn't have access to the structures that would allow them to publish. Um, and, and because of this, many, many words that might have been coined by women or the working classes just were never written down. And because they're not written down, um, there's no evidence for them. It's you know in a court of law these same things happen you know there's no tangible evidence for something and so therefore it we have to assume it doesn't exist <laughs> um, or we can't test it we can't test its veracity we can't test its validity if it's not written down it's from a social scientist's point of view it's a um, it's a failure of imagination it's a, a failure of um, creativity, I suppose, if if something has to be written down, particularly at that time, um, then, it's, then the dictionary is never going to be a complete record of the English language, past and present. It's
1: only ever going to be partially a record of the English language. And that's what you found at the end of the research that you did for this novel. You found that the, the dictionary was, I think the words you used were flawed and gendered. And yes. there's, a, there's a lovely example that Esme challenges her father on this and says, well, what do you mean? Why do the words have to be written down? And she thinks of the various words that she's learnt at the market and she says at one point, well, that means that a word used by the greengrocer won't be included, but when Charles Dickens uses a word like jog trotty, which I have to say I haven't heard of before, um that will be included. And in fact,
2: was. So exactly. Jog Trotty, and there's a number of words like this. So these still are very in the
1: dictionary pipes. It's yes, not
2: what I'd heard before. It's still in the dictionary because just because they won't take words out. So jog trotty got into the dictionary because Dickens
1: wrote it, essentially. That that is the reason. That's the only piece of evidence for its existence.
2: Yes, and it's the only time it was only ever used once and it was only ever used by Dickens and it was never used again as far as I know, except when people like us talk about Dickens writing Mm -hmm. the word jog trotty. There are other words like this and they're called nonce words. So they actually, um, James Murray did give them a category of their own. I don't know if nonce is short for nonsense, Mm -hmm. but if you look them up in the dictionary they'll have nonce next to them and Mm -hmm. it's an acknowledgement that they were kind of, uh
1: coined especially for a particular text by a particular author but they still got in i know that you made two visits to the archives at oxford university would you like to tell us a little bit about the um the research involved
2: yeah well i'm sure it's obvious i i just loved it i loved everything about it i loved that i got to stay at um both times at two different colleges Um, during the summer they they rent the rooms out as bed and breakfast. So I stayed at Magdalen College the first time and Brazenose College, the second, both 15th century colleges. Unbelievable. Um, and then I, I walked around Oxford I, because Oxford has is unusual in that it's never been damaged in war. So it wasn't bombed during World War II, for instance. So its ancient streets and buildings are still all intact. And so I could walk the streets that Esme walked. I could touch the stone buildings that Esme might have touched. I can go into the churches that she might have gone into. and, And I had access to Oxford University Press and to the archives. And the archivists there are incredibly generous uh, they they let me sit there all day. They would bring out boxes and boxes of slips or, um, or proof pages. They would show me around the, the press and they've got a lovely museum there that shows you how the printing process used to work and and how they used to um, set the type. And, and I can touch those little pieces of metal that Gareth, the, com- the compositor in, in this in this story would have touched. And I can use the you know the little bits of equipment that he would have used, and and you know not not only is the um, is the archive important because of what you you see and touch and read in the archive, but it's also important for what's missing. Um, and and so you know one of the things that I found was not there were sometimes records of the women.
1: I so want to ask you about that. Let's talk about one of the women who you did find some information about, and that's Edith Thompson. So she features in your book as uh, she's called Auntie Dit. Uh, and she's Esme's Dita. God- uh, D- Dita. Dita, Dita. Dita. Yeah. Um And she is Esme's godmother. So she is based on the real person, Edith Thompson, what do you or what do we know about her what did you uncover in your research about the real edith thompson who was she and what was her role in relation to the first edition of the oxford english dictionary
2: okay so i'll i'll tell you two things and you can you can decide for yourself whether she's been adequately um acknowledged in history. Edith Thompson started off as a volunteer sending in words um, with sentences. She did this from the very first letter, A, to the very last, Z. So she was a volunteer for the dictionary for 45, 50 years of her life. Uh, Not only did she send in words, she was such a valued um, volunteer that she was asked to proofread Um, pages she was asked to find definitions of particular words uh, or uses she was asked she would have been asked sometimes to create tentative definitions for words this is the work of a lexicographer Um, in her own right she was a what you might call an amateur historian but good enough to have written the history of england textbook that was used and um Multiple editions were printed over many, many years. was used in high schools throughout the UK and, in fact, I think in Canada. Um, She was an assistant to a real, in inverted commas, historian, and she wrote a biography of her grandfather who was um, who was a parliamentarian and, in fact, an advocate for universal suffrage at the time? And there's a, there's a lovely word, universal. It didn't actually include women, um, <laughs> but it included men of all races and um, creed. That's what universal meant uh, back then. Um, and so she she was an incredible woman. Um, and yet, if you go online and look for any information about her, there's about half a page of information written about Edith Thompson, and it's because she was the biographer of her grandfather. Mm. So I can't even find anything about her writing this history of England. Um, that's, that's a line in, in various things, but there's there's no detail about that. And she represented for me, I suppose, many of the women who worked on the dictionary. Other women include women who are in the story, Ross Frith and Elsie Murray, who were daughters of James Murray and Eleanor Bradley. And they were paid to work on the dictionary and all three of those women worked on the dictionary for most of their adult life. How hard was it to find um, written information about them? Oh, there is none, practically none, other than in reference to their fathers and to the fact they worked at the dictionary. When I went into the archives, I found more. I found, for instance, evidence of them on a pay sheet. And, of course, they were right down the bottom. (laughs) They got paid the least. Um, I found evidence of them through letters. So the archives at Oxford University Press contain many, many, many letters between Edith Thompson and uh, James Murray, and they're wonderful. And she had an incredible sense of humour. She would often draw um, the the word. So if a a word that she was sending in um, some information about was a physical object, she would draw it and try to explain how it worked um, so that the lexicographers could define it better. Um, she would tell stories about how difficult it was or, or how demeaning it was to go into a hairdresser's and, and find out what a lip pencil was. And, and, you know, they must think me terribly frivolous because I was asking about all the colours, et cetera. Um, things like this. So um, I got to know a little of her character through her letters. Um, and But really... I had some biographical information, but really very little else. Um, and I think the thing that made me want to um, keep her in my story as Edith Thompson, I didn't give, I didn't give her a pseudonym in that she is Edith Thompson in the book, and Esme gives her the nickname Dita. And that was my way of solving that ethical conundrum of fictionalizing a real human being. I decided that because she really had been so neglected in the official history, her name does not appear as often as it should in the official history. I didn't want to excise her from this story. Uh, I really wanted to use her real name. But to acknowledge that I fictionalise half of her existence in this story, I, I call her Dita when she is in... Uh, Correspondence or interaction with the fictional characters
1: in this story. Pip, I want to ask you a lovely anecdote that you retell with a photograph at the end, I think, about the dinner that was held in 1928 to celebrate the completion of the Oxford English Dictionary and who was included in that dinner and who wasn't. Could you tell us that story?
2: Yeah, so okay, this was one of those moments in the archives that. you know, was kind of painful, overwhelming (laughs) and also incredibly exciting because um, in terms of my book. When I was in the archives, I came across the um, seating arrangement for the dinner that celebrated the final publication of the final words of the Oxford English Dictionary. Now, this uh, dinner was held in 1928 in Goldsmiths Hall in London, and it was presided over by the Prime Minister uh, and various other, um, you know, high-ranking people. 150 people were invited to eat in the hall uh, to celebrate the dictionary, and they included people who had worked on the dictionary, you know, for decades, lexicographers, assistants and so on. They included... um, newspaper editors who'd been covering the story of the dictionary. they included people who'd worked on the dictionary maybe for decades or maybe just for a few months like Tolkien, for instance, J.r. Tolkien was invited because he worked on the dictionary for 18 months after the war. Um, it, it it included uh, people that knew people who worked on the dictionary, school teachers, etc. but it did not include a single woman even though, like I said, Edith Thompson, Eleanor Bradley, Ross Frith Murray, Elsie Murray had worked on the dictionary, paid and unpaid, for 40 years each of their life. But three of these women, Edith, Eleanor and Ross Frith, were invited to sit in the balcony of Goldsmiths Hall
1: and watch the men eat. And were given a copy of the menu
0: outline.
2: That might be me fictionalising that bit. I don't, I'm don't. I'm i assuming they would know what the menu was. If they were watching the meat, they would have seen the champagne flow, the caviar, the turtle soup. I have the menu, so I know what they ate. I know what they drank. This is the wonderful thing about an archive. You know, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> they really did eat turtle soup. Um, and... And I've got the proceedings as well. So, you know, I know what the Prime Minister said about this book and I know that he thanked all the men involved. (laughs) So, you know, this, this is just an example of how women have been excised from history, you know, and they've been excised from the celebrations of the effort that has gone into all sorts of historical moments that they've been part of and yet they haven't been even invited to the celebration
1: it's a perfect allegory isn't it that they're there as bystanders yeah not participants
2: yeah that's that's exactly right even though they were participants even though edith thompson
1: probably created many of the definitions that are in the dictionary Pip, you said that at the beginning of your research for the novel, you wanted to find out those two things. Do words mean different things to men and women? And if they do, does it matter that the dictionary was, this dictionary, was developed by men? What were the answers that you came to? Was the first edition of the Oxford English Dictionary infected by bias? Yes, and not just gender bias, class
2: bias and racial bias. Um, There are definitions in that first volume of the Oxford English Dictionary or that first edition that, um, you know, would would just shock you the way that uh, people of colour, people from, um, you know, colonised countries are described uh, in the dictionary. I know that these, um, many of these, well, they never take a word out in the process of um, updating the dictionary, the lexicographers are also updating uh, the entries that are clearly gendered or racist. Um, And rightly so, because that's the other wonderful thing though about these paper editions. It's that not only do they tell us how a word was defined at a particular moment in time, But the definition itself and some of the descriptors that are used, they tell us about the people who were defining them. They tell us uh, what the values of those people were. And that's what, for me as a novelist and in this book, I found incredibly fascinating, but also uh, why I would defend um, the, the preservation of these old documents. I would not want. Uh, it's one of the things that worries me about a digital, mm. um, a digital only, uh, um, you know, edition, third edition. One of the things that worries me is that digitally we can always update things, and we don't necessarily keep the history
1: of that thing. Is that what's is, happening, Pip? They, I, I know I know that they're working on a new edition. Is it to be a digital edition? They're not sure. They think it will be so big that it might only
2: be digitally available. Yes, so that is the the current thinking. So it's it's not um, clear yet whether there will be a, a hard paper edition. Um, it might just be digital. Uh, but for me, the problem is as a I'm not a historian, but as a novelist or as a researcher or speaking on the behalf of historians, what you then might lose is um, that that sort of. Um, the information that's between the lines. Yeah,
1: so insight into the mindset of those that are writing the definition.
2: That's right, that's right. You know, one very small example is in the first edition of the Oxford English Dictionary, they have the word pants, as in trousers, (laughs) and, you know, not an offensive word at all, as far as we know, but it's defined as a vulgar abbreviation of pantaloons used in America. So that's how it's defined. And that tells us so much about the person defining it rather than about the people using that word pants (laughs) because I don't think Americans at the time thought it was vulgar,
1: but the English did. Pip, I want to just end by looking at this idea of um, the new edition being prepared. And I've seen you talking, I think it's outside this book somewhere else, saying that you have hope for the future of this latest edition of the Oxford Dictionary. And you said that our modern lexicographers are documenting their language in a way that was not possible for James Murray and his team. Could you just end by telling us a little bit about that? What are they doing differently and what's the significance of that?
2: So there are a number of things that are different. And I I am a fan of the Oxford English Dictionary as much as I, I think that original one was gendered. It was also extraordinary. Um, as so many projects are. And we have to keep building on, on these things and improving them. That's, that's what we do as humans. We evolve. And the dictionary is evolving in many ways. And, and one of those ways is by having many much more diversity on the staff. Um, they have had a, a woman editor now, but only one, I think. <laughs> so, you know, there's room for improvement. But, of course, they've got a lot of women um, lexicographers as well as le- lexicographers from various um, backgrounds. Uh, of course, this is still an endeavour of the educated classes, but um, slang is probably much more available and much more um, acknowledged as real words. And so more slang words, I suspect, are getting into the dictionary. But the most important change is that um, literacy has improved since that first dictionary, and also the ways we communicate. So there are many more ways that men, women, the working classes, people from migrant populations, people from colonised countries, um, people around the globe who speak English, there are many more ways that we can communicate, including Facebook and Twitter and text, and these are examples of written words and they are being accessed by the lexicographers who are creating the definitions of the words that we are using now.
1: And one Um, example that you give of that is that in 2019 the words climate emergency and climate strike were words of the year for the Oxford and the Collins dictionaries respectively. That's right, that's right. And they were words that were uh, coined by young people
2: in particular and sometimes written on their skin. Um, And we have visual representation of that. You know, that could never have happened so, you know, in, in the same way 100 years ago. Last year, Oxford English Dictionary couldn't come up with a single word. They came up with a list that had about 50 words in it (laughs) because COVID has created a whole new lexicon, um, which is just wonderful. And I think one of the ones I love the most is anthropause, which is this this moment in um, human evolution, this pausing of, um, of, of, you know, time which I think is lovely. And, of course, there's so many. covid COVID is in the dictionary, (laughs) which, you know. So I I think what they're demonstrating is that they they are shedding that um, desire to only include words that they
1: think people should use. And they're Um, also looking at a broader spectrum of evidence. That's right. And,
2: And that's the thing about the English language, and James Murray acknowledged this right from the beginning, The English language is an ever-evolving thing. You cannot pin it down. And from the moment they printed the very first words, A to ant, he started to collect words for a supplement. Mm. So he
1: knew right from the start that they would always be a little bit behind and they always will. Pip, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you, Byron Writers Festival, for bringing us together. Let's hope that next year you and I will certainly see each other there, that wonderful festival will be back on foot, bigger and better than ever before. And Pip, congratulations on the extraordinary success that you've had with this book. Releasing a debut novel into a pandemic is um, pretty challenging and the accolades that you've received, the prizes that you've received, the book sales are testament to, to what a fabulous book it is. So congratulations and thank you for talking to me today.
2: Oh, thank you so much, Nicole, and thank you for um, giving me the time to talk about it. And to everyone who's read it,
1: I, I, I'm so grateful. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabity.com.au, to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abity, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you.
0: I look forward to talking books with you again soon. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. This series has been generously supported by the RISE Fund, an Australian government initiative, and the New South Wales Government through Create New South Wales. For more conversations, please visit byronwritersfestival.com.